This week, we Southern California locals got yet another October extension as temperatures stretched into the upper 90s. And my wife and I decided to make one more plan to go yet again to the beach to do her most favorite thing, which is boogie boarding together. But we had to sandwich it in between two other commitments. One was going to be seriously sleeping in, and the other was going to be an evening event that we had with friends that we were going to have to be back by late afternoon. So this left us a a four to five hour window to go spend together on a date day at the beach. Well, we took very seriously that first part of sleeping in and then we leisurely got ready, packed up the car, and then literally within minutes of being ready to leave, Lisa notices, oh no, the rear right tire is completely flat. And at that moment, the air went out of all of our afternoon plans and also out of our attitudes. We, uh, we realized at this point, I'm going to have to jack up the car, I'm going to have to remove the tire, put on the donut, go to a tire place without an appointment on a Friday approaching noon, and probably due to COVID, sit outside for a couple hours in 100 degree heat. We had just bought the tires just a few months ago, and I didn't have another $150 to pay for replacing a tire that I had just bought just recently. With this delay, we were going to have to cancel our beach plans to make it back for our later commitment. And then we started looking at each other, and well, one of us remembered that actually we had seen on Tuesday evening uh, the, the sign on the dash that was the flat tire symbol, and what did that mean? And the other of us was supposed to check on that, and well, that other of us, I didn't do it. And so we're caught by surprise here. And then I'm angry at God. It's like, God, you knew our plans. You knew how special this was going to be. Why did you allow this to happen? And about that time, I remembered words that I was preparing to preach this Sunday from 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, For a little while, there wasn't a lot of rejoicing that was going on in our hearts, but we were trying to practice what I was going to soon be preaching, and I began praying steadily, asking God to sustain me, asking God to help me trust in Him, restore my joy in Him, asking Him to make things right, remembering His character, that He is good and that He can work through circumstances. So we prayed about each of our concerns and asked Him to glorify Himself in our situation and in our responses. And as it turned out, while it did take a couple hours to get the damaged tire (coughs) repaired, the tire place was able to make an appointment, and they actually fixed it for me at no cost. They actually ran air conditioning inside, and there was a chair for me to sit in glorious AC as they did the work. Lisa and I were able to rework our weekend plans, and we reshifted some things, and we went yesterday to the beach instead and had a glorious day. And then as a bonus, I was even able to upgrade my sermon introduction for y'all. As we were discussing these events yesterday at the beach, we recognized, you know, these are first world hassles. These have to do with the category of what one does on one's day off with free time. 
Sometimes the problems we deal with are actually much more severe, a matter of life and death, a matter of losing one's job, or losing one's income, or losing one's health, or losing the life of a loved one. Sometimes things are really serious. We wonder, do these words still apply? We're going to be focusing this morning on rhythms of prayer, and particularly on the three-word command, pray without ceasing, from 1 Thessalonians 5.17, asking, what does it mean? What is our motivation? Like, why would we do that? And what might it look like to practically live lives of prayerfulness? See, prayer is hard. We feel guilty. I don't pray enough. Does anybody pray enough? Prayer is hard. Habits are helpful. Today, hopefully, we can see some habits that will be helpful to us. Today, our focus is to pursue building rhythms of prayerfulness. My hope is today that you will walk away compelled by the Spirit with one or more ideas of how you can integrate more prayer into your life, more walking with God, more attentiveness to the Spirit, more engaging Him in everything that you do, practical ways to grow your prayer life, even starting today. So with that, would you bow with me and let's even pray together right now. Heavenly Father, even in this moment, as my words go out, uh, to people listening throughout this state, throughout the city, in some cases, different places in the world. God, we know that you hear our voices when we cry out to you, when we call out to you in prayer. God, we pray that you'd make us more attentive to you, more responsive to you, and that there would not be anything that we go through in our lives that we would not bring to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So pray without ceasing. What does this mean? Well, verse 17 here is conveniently located between verse 16 and verse 18, and I want to encourage you to look at that. Maybe you've got your Bible or your Bible app, but there's three commands here. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in all circumstances, give thanks. All of these phrases are present tense. They're continual. We're called to do each of them, and each of them has this alwaysness about it. So for the grammarians in the house, how many alwayses can we do simultaneously? Wait, I can't rejoice, I'm too busy praying. Wait, I can't pray, I'm still giving thanks. So we see there's something wrong here. These are not competing for space, but rather these inform each other. They are related expressions. Together they contribute to an approach of prayer. So I have an attitude of rejoicing, and my prayers are dominated by thankfulness. We ask God for new things in light of thanksgiving, of seeing His demonstrations of answering us and responding to us before, and so we bring our new concerns in light of that. God is not calling us to simply be happy or to be incessantly chatty, rather this is our normal disposition toward God. We are to rejoice not just in life or in circumstances. We are to enjoy, rejoice in God, in His character, in the reality that God is in control, that God is with us. There is reason to rejoice in all things all the time. We talk. We don't just talk. We talk with Him. We talk to Him. We listen to Him. And we are thankful 
not just for blessings that are out there, but we are thankful specifically to God for Him, for Him being with us, for Him gracing us with many blessings and giving us many gifts and answering our prayers ongoingly. Or do we? Can we really? Can we literally do these things? Many monks throughout the ages did try to pursue these commands literally. They actually pulled away from civilization. They set up their own communities, sometimes in desert areas, where they would pull away, where they would vow, uh, make vows of chastity. They would have no families. They would become family. They would have vows of poverty. They would pursue no business, no economic dealings. Actually, they would try to set up their lives so that they would be praying from the moment they woke up, which was usually still <laughs> later watches of the night, all the way through the day into the evening such that their days were filled with prayer and an effort to pray literally without ceasing. And there were people who economically supported them, providing them food, providing them needs. It was as if they got paid to pray. Nice work if you can get it. But most of us today feel other callings, callings of family, callings of work, callings of engagement in lives of other people, and we wonder, how can we be always about these spiritual things while we are also engaging the other commitments in life? Is this to be taken literally? Well, we see various scriptures by David in the Psalms and Paul in his epistles that actually say that they are praying night and day. Wow. We wonder again, does that mean that they didn't sleep? Does that mean that they didn't do anything else? Or is this perhaps an expression? So early on as a worship pastor in the mid-90s, I needed to go up from Portland to Seattle for a music event. I stayed at some friends of my parents who offered me free lodging. Now they had a nine-year-old girl at their home, and as an adult, I had never really been around an extroverted nine-year-old girl in the relaxed comfort of her home, and I literally didn't know that anybody could talk that much. I seriously was stunned that it was humanly possible for one person to say that many words. It was a constant running monologue, first to her mom, and then when her mom found ways to escape, then it was to her dad, then it was to whomever else was left, which was me, and this went on seemingly for hours. There was no mute button, there was no off switch, it was as if every thought that entered into her mind went unfiltered out of her mouth. There was nothing to slow the flow. It was breathtaking. It was amazing. It was overwhelming. We wonder, is that what it means to pray without ceasing? Just incessant words? Does God want to hear unstopping communication from us? I don't think that's what He's desiring. So I thought, well, maybe some Greek could be helpful here. I mean, what might without ceasing actually mean that is different than without ceasing, right? So I looked up four commentaries by Greek scholars, and immediately I got four different translations. But they were pray incessantly, pray without fail, pray constantly, and pray continuously. So I looked up three more, and they all agreed that pray continuously captured the essence of what we're to do here in this command. 
So this means we are to pray ongoingly, unceasingly, unstoppingly, ever-flowingly, everlastingly, uh, continuously. All of these things mean without ceasing. Is this possible? No. Is this exaggerated? Yes. Is this hyperbole? Absolutely. Why? For rhetorical value. Paul is trying to get our attention here to say this is important. Notice at the end of verse 18, it says, for this is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. All three things, God has purposes for us living this way. What is God's will for my life? That I would rejoice always, that I would pray without ceasing, that I would give thanks in all circumstances. You might have prayed prayers in your life at different times. God, I just want to know your will. God, would you tell me what your will is for my life? God, I want to know your will. This is God's will for your life, that you rejoice always, that you pray without ceasing, that in all things you give thanks to him. This is his will for you in Christ Jesus. I want us to see these three exhortations here in light of the broader context of the passage, and we'll get more understanding as we go. Let's read verses 12 to 24. I'm going to read these with some comments along the way. Verse 12 begins with attitude toward leaders. Paul writes, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, we Americans are such do-it-yourselfers and believers in our own expertise that we don't like to submit our ideas, our viewpoints, our perspectives to anyone. I mean, our nation was founded on leaving the king behind, right? And yet, we still don't want to place ourselves under a president, under a congressman, under a governor, under a mayor, even under a boss or some other kind of leader. We want to say, I have my ideas, I have my ways of thinking about things, and I want people to listen to me. Um, The thing is, we bring this into the church also. And what Paul is talking about here he is actually calling us to submit ourselves, to place ourselves under the spiritual leaders that God has provided, the pastors, the elders, the teachers of God's Word, our parents, uh, our leaders, to place ourselves under them as part of God's calling for us. For many of us, that's going to be something that we will need to pray about regularly, how to do that, especially when we think they're mistaken or we believe them to be wrong, how do we fulfill that command? It's worth praying about. Uh, Picking it up, this is now toward others, into verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always look to do good to one another and to everyone. And again, we see this list of admonitions, challenges that are very difficult to do, and then it begins to speak of the always and to everyone and all the time. And we realize, oh man, God, how can I, how can I do that? I'm going to need your power, your strength, your wisdom. I'm going to need you to change my heart. Boy, there's some fodder for prayer there. 
And then we come to our three verses of the morning, and this is written of our response to God primarily. Rejoice always in Him. Pray without ceasing to Him. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then we come to the fourth section of it, and this is really directed to the Spirit of God, the empowered Spirit of God. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And if we're going to pursue those things, God's spiritual empowerment in our lives and discern where God is speaking, where He is not, what is testing all things to know what is good and what is evil, we're going to be needing to be prayerful, needing to walk with God, needing to discern as He guides us. And it climaxes here in verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful, and He will surely do it. So there we see the goal, complete sanctification, that we would become blameless by the time of Christ's return or the time that our years in this life expire. See, the context here is First Thessalonians has just discussed the return of Christ. Jesus will be returning for a pure bride and judging sin, and God is going to use the stuff of this world, all of it, to reshape us to refashion us, to remold us, to reform us, to love Christ more so that we become something, so that we become fully sanctified, that we become completely holy, blameless in this dark and passing world to become fit for life with Christ forever. Now think of the challenges that you faced this week, people who have irritated you, disappointing news that you've received, absurd political headlines that you've heard, challenging situation, challenging finances, broken relationships, badly timed flat tire, all the upside down crazy that you've seen, all of this, all of this collectively are catalyst opportunities allowed by God into your life to arrest your attention, to demonstrate your need to relate to God and seek relational refreshment from Him. Each scenario provides us an opportunity to desperately cry out to God and to see His power displayed and to make you a little bit more like Jesus. And for that to happen, we will need to become a praying people, and I will need to become a praying man. God doesn't do His reshaping of us apart from our walking with Christ and continually submitting our hearts to Him through prayerfulness. Prayer is the the way God has planned to do His work in us. So if we want to pursue what verse 18 has called, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, to the goal of verse 23, becoming fully sanctified and blameless before Christ returns, well, we then have a mission for how to live life each day. It's with a primary focus on prayer. So, let's take a little deeper look here at praying without ceasing or 
continuous prayer. What does this mean? What does this look like? John Stott has offered, it doesn't mean that every other activity must be dropped for the sake of prayer, but that every activity must be carried out in a spirit of prayer, which is the spontaneous outcome of a sense of God's presence. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Another church commentator writes of Polycarp, who was one of the earliest church fathers, that he had developed a constant habit of praying for everyone whom he had come in contact with. He prayed daily for extended periods of time, which was his practice that he had learned from the apostles. And so these two emphases now come together and comprise what I think it means to pray without ceasing. It means, number one, to live continually attentive to God's presence continually to be attentive to God's presence with us. Number two, to frequently engage in intentional prayer. There are times that we want to set aside and actually intentionally pray. When we think of prayer, it includes a variety of pursuits, asking or requesting. That's most basic to prayer. But again, in this immediate context, we see that even that is flavored by an attitude of rejoicing and by a focus on thanksgiving, meaning thanksgiving should perhaps dominate our prayer. In light of God, who you are and what you have done and how you've answered my prayers in the past, I now come to you with my concerns today. From yesterday's answers, I'm going to bring you today's requests as I rejoice in you. And that becomes a model for how to pray. Beneath these words of prayer is a foundation and this foundation is relationship. When we pray, we want to remember we are with God and we are remembering His presence with us. Remember, Jesus came as Emmanuel, literally, God with us. And He sent the Spirit of God to us to be God in us. So when we pray, we recognize that God has provided everything we need. He has come to be with us in Jesus. He has come to be in us in the Holy Spirit so that His presence is pervasive around us. He sees everything that we see. He knows our thoughts. He knows our instincts. He knows our heart. We might as well keep a conversation going with Him about the things that He already knows. It's not too big a step to turn my thoughts, my opinions, my ideas into prayers. Lord, here's my idea, here's my thought, here's my, attention, here's my intention of my heart, the opinion of my mind. Would you shape these? Would you redirect these? Would you make these pure before you? So when we pray, we acknowledge God's continuous nearness to us, and we become more aware of our dependence on Him. It's about living life in constant relational awareness of God being with us, and sometimes we set aside time to use words intentionally, both speaking and listening as we relate to our Lord, we relate to our Savior, our Advocate, our Brother, our Lord, our God. This isn't just for super saints like David or Paul or Polycarp. This is actually God's intention for each one of us, for you and for me, each one of us children through adults in this 
hyper-modernized world. It's about doing this together as God's people. Do you realize God has called us into a gathered church? This building is nearly empty right now. God has for a season called us out of the building. He has not called us to not be the gathered church. So we are gathering on the lawn. We are gathering in small groups in homes and outside. We are gathering online together here in this place. This is not artificial. This is still real a genuine gathering of God's believers seeking Him together. God has called us to be a house of prayer. It's not a building. It's to be a people of prayer. And through prayer, God does His work of making us more like Christ. We have to ask, are we interested in that? How high a value is that to me to participate in that? How much do I want that? In his book, Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard defines spiritual formation this way. It is the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Christ himself. Now, I want you to notice here in Willard's definition that spiritual formation focuses on the Holy Spirit reshaping our inner being, our thoughts, our heart, our attitudes, our responses, our motives to the goal of becoming like Christ. It parallels verses 23 and 24 of 1 Thessalonians that this goal or this motivation for prayer, why would we pray? The motivation is the very reshaping of our spirit, our soul, our body to become pure and blameless, actually spiritually transformed. And all of this happens primarily through rhythms of prayer. So what does it mean to pray without ceasing? I'm coming down to two aspects. Number one is simply to live prayerfully. To live prayerfully, it means to live continually attentive to God's presence. And the second is to intentionally pray, to frequently engage in intentional actual prayer. Why would I want to live this way? Because as I build rhythms of prayer into my daily pattern. God changes me to become more like Jesus. And how do I do this? How do we grow in rhythms of prayer? What can they look like? Well, I want us to look at these two categories very practically, living prayerfully and then intentionally praying. So by living prayerfully, I mean going through life, responding to God as things come up. This is organic prayer. This isn't time that you've set aside. This is walking with God, trying to keep in step with the Spirit, being attuned, being attentive, that God is with me. And as I go through my day, certain things happen that give me opportunities to engage the Lord and to invite Him into what I'm going through. Here's seven catalyst opportunities and how we might respond in prayer in seven ways. First would be anxiety. When you're overwhelmed, you have a need, there's something, oh no, what am I going to do? There's an opportunity to respond with trust. That'd be the first one, with trust. Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So there's this opportunity to trust. My wife Lisa has helped me with a physical posture, and that is to lift empty hands out, and eyes closed and posture up, which is communicating, Lord, 
My hands are empty. I don't have answers for this. I am bringing nothing to this. But I'm entrusting this to you. God, you see this. God, you know this. Would you take this? Would you solve this? Help me not to take it back on my own. Help me continue to relinquish this to you. Would you calm my anxiety as I trust this to you? And we find we're doing this a lot. We just look at each other. Something new happens. And we raise our hands and we look to God and we look to each other and we say, we're going to trust God even with this. Second catalyst opportunity, we need wisdom. There's a conundrum to solve. This is where we come to God and we ask. We ask Him. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. What a wonderful, encouraging promise. We can ask God, God, you know everything. I don't know what to do here, but you know, so I'm asking you. Third, conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit. What do we do then? We can confess. Imagine there's something that we're viewing, something that we are participating in, something we're engaging in. And it's not that some other legalist has said, hey, don't do that. It's actually the Spirit of God within us that is causing a rub to happen where we feel like maybe this isn't in my best interest. Maybe this isn't glorifying to Christ what I'm doing or what I'm participating in or how I'm handling this. Maybe God has different plans for me. Maybe this isn't honoring God. And I'm feeling a conviction of sin. What do I do? I confess. Psalm 38, 18 says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. So we can pray, Lord, I am sorry for participating in this. Would you change my heart? Would you help this sin to not be alluring to me? Would you captivate my heart with higher things, with better things? Would you replace these desires with desires to honor you and to please you? Would you give me the courage to stop sinning and stop participating in sin? Fourth, about to confront somebody or about to post something on social media that is going to fix the world's problem and change everyone's perspective to think correctly, right? I need discernment. I need discernment. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what, the good and per- what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we want to post something, we want to say something significant. We need to discern, not how can I fix everybody's wrong perspective, How can I show my political bias? How can I let the world know what really is true? But how can I faithfully represent Christ? Could God give me creativity so that people might be inclined to hear a different perspective? Could God give me clarity and empathy, even as I know some people might disagree, but give a winsomeness so that people might be drawn to the heart of God that's behind the comment that I'm hoping to communicate. I wonder how, how can I faithfully represent you, Christ, as I write or as I confront somebody or as, an, as I seek to address an issue. Number five, during spiritual input, perhaps you are listening to a sermon, maybe this sermon, or you're listening to a podcast 
and you're listening for information, let me encourage you, be transformable. Be changeable. Matthew 7, 24, Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. God is never terribly interested in us merely hearing words, but we are called to not be hearers only, but also to be doers of the word. So we want to be changeable. We say, Lord, as I'm listening to the words of Scripture, help me to grow. Help me to take truth to heart. Help me not be one of those who just hears the word and moves on unchanged. But God, give me a soft heart. Would you help me today to embrace what you would have for me and change me to be a little bit more like Jesus today? Number six, when I'm with someone in need, pray for them now. It's an opportunity to engage. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has power to accomplish great work. So when someone comes to you, and begins to tell you, this is hard, this is wicked, I don't like this, this hurts me, this is a struggle, I have this concern, I have this need, I have this prayer request, and you listen, resist walking away right there while the time is fresh and precious. Ask, can I pray with you? Can I put my arm on you and take this to the Lord with you? Or maybe you're on the other side of this and there's an opportunity to engage. Maybe you're the one with the need. And you have the courage not only to share with someone your burden, but to ask them to be as Christ to you, to take this to Christ with you. Say, would you pray with me while we're here together? While we're here gathered uh, together, may we experience the presence of Christ together. Lastly, number seven, when talking with an unbeliever, pray for an opening for the gospel. This is an opportunity to intercede. In Acts 6, 4, 16, 14, regarding Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. There's an opportunity to intercede when we are talking with unbelievers. When they share with us, they can share their burdens, their worldview, the things they're upset about, the things that bother them, their opinions on life. All of these things could be openings for the gospel where are they hurting? Where are they prideful? Where are they in need? Where is their life breaking? Where do they need a Savior? So we can be interceding even as we're listening intently to their words. We can be turning those words into prayer. Lord, would you give me an opening to offer hope, to offer healing, to point to Christ, to show the love of God just through the way that I care to intercede even during the conversation, that their heart would be softened to pay attention to the gospel. So those are ways that we can just adapt life to living prayerfully, how to respond in the midst of life. But this other area, this area of intentional prayer, this is where we want to protect times. These are things that go on our calendar. These are things that are in our daily intentions. These are things that are times set aside that will push other things out of the way because we've deemed these to be more important. And I would encourage you to have times set aside for intentional prayer that work into the daily life that you live and your daily plans as you go through your days each week. One of the heritages that I'm so grateful for that my family gave to me is praying at mealtimes. 
It's kind of a basic thing, but it's this idea that before we eat, we will all sit down as a means of respecting one another, and we will pray to give gratitude to God. We'll express thanksgiving for God's provision. And this is something that my parents taught me to do when I was a child, and I have brought into my family, and this is what we do. And it might be that you don't have any patterns of prayer. Well, if so, this might be a place to start to say, I'm going to turn every mealtime into a time of thanksgiving. I'm at least going to honor God with gratitude for the food that he has provided for me. Now, as I think back on childhood memories of prayer, there, there were actually a concern, there were concerns sometimes when my dad would say to my mom, Bev, would you pray tonight? And sometimes I would shudder and say, oh no, because my mom, if she hadn't prayed for a long time, she might start praying, well, like Polycarp for virtually everybody that she's ever known and everybody who's sick and she might start praying for missionaries. She might start confessing sin. She might start crying. It might go 10 or 15 minutes and I'm like, mom, would you just pray for the food and say amen because it's getting cold and I want to eat. And so I've learned from that that even though I want to intercede for my children and my family when we pray at dinner, I keep it short so that we can eat food while it's hot. Second thing, end of day recap, bedtime. What a great time to consider the day. How did things go? Lord, you were with me this time and this time, and I'm going to need you tomorrow. Some kind of recap, particularly if we've got kids to make bedtime special for them, to end the day well, particularly if it's one of these COVID zoomed us crazy kind of days where the wiggles and the worms haven't gotten their way out and it's been hard, it's been difficult, it's been a fussy day. How can we make sure to end well where children know at the end of the day that mom and dad still love them, God loves them, so we hold them and we're willing to read even a second story, and we'll sing a song with them, and we'll pray for them, and we'll remind them that we love them, and that God loves them, and we'll help them learn patterns of praying at the end of the day. Number three, we turn Scripture to prayer. Many of us have patterns of reading, and we read to know God's Word, which is a great thing to do. And some people study Scripture to know doctrines and to know theology, and that's an awesome thing to do. And I want to encourage us not to leave those behind, but to go further, to additionally read relationally, to read recognizing that God is with us in these words, and to literally pray these words. The words that we're reading, turn them into prayers and pray them to God, asking God to change us, asking God to do His work even as we're interacting with those words. Number four, a way to intentionally pray, to view songs as prayer. When we come to church and sing songs, or when, when you're watching online, I realize it can be weird, maybe a little artificial to, to sing from your bedroom or your living room, but I encourage you to participate. Think of songs as prayer. Or maybe you've got worship songs playing in the background when you're driving or when you're doing other things at home, but to engage songs as prayer. Scripture routinely associates singing as praying. Singing is literally sung prayer. It's prayers to God that involve our voice, our body's 
energy, our strength, our passions, our emotions, even our breathing, the breath of God, the breath of the Spirit responding to Him in prayer. So I encourage you, this doesn't have anything to do with what kind of a musician you are. It has to do with what kind of a prayer you are to turn songs into prayer. Number five, uh, to have a morning regimen of prayer. If you don't have a morning regimen, I encourage you of all things to perhaps consider starting one. I've been doing one for many years. I've described it previously, so some of this may sound familiar. But uh, going back to high school, I always set my alarm 10 minutes before I wanted to awaken. Part of that is simply to deceive myself that the alarm goes off and I feel like, hey, I've got 10 more minutes to sleep. What a gift. Now, I can do the math and realize that's not actually 10 more minutes of sleep. I just happened to wake up 10 minutes earlier and then got the 10 minutes back. I get that. And minimally, that's the benefit is I've got this extra restfulness. But on the best days, as I'm beginning to awaken, I begin to pray. And from my grogginess, I will pray asking God to make me alert to Him. What I awaken to His Spirit what I awaken to His heart for me today, so that by the time I get my body out of bed, I've already been praying. And then inevitably, I'm going to walk in to the bathroom and see myself in a mirror and think, what a mess. This is before shower, before my hair. I, 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 I'm blurry-eyed at this point, and I can see I'm not as strong as I used to be. I'm more gray than I used to be. I'm not all that if I ever was. And it brings me to a place of humility, which is not a bad thing, to recognize that I am nothing without God, and I need Him. It causes me to consider my days and have a desire to finish strong and want to live the rest of my years that He gives me for him, remembering that they are few, that in my case, I have fewer in front of me than those behind me, most likely, and I want them to count. And then I'll step into the shower, and I'm going to cleanse my body, and I'm there in full nakedness. I cannot lie to God. I cannot disguise God. I can't pull anything over on God. I never can. He sees my heart fully. He knows my thoughts deeply. He knows the sinfulness that is there. And so when I'm cleaning my body, I pray and I ask Him to clean my heart. I ask Him to cleanse my mind and to purify my thoughts. And I'll go in a rocking chair with coffee, usually for five minutes. This is one of my favorite prayer things to do in the morning. Grab a cup of coffee, and as I'm still trying to awaken, and I'm rocking, I turn that to prayer and say, God, this is your day. This is your day. Would you guide me in wisdom? There's so many things I can do, so many things I need to do. God, would you clarify for me right now, what are the things on your heart for me to do? What do I need to start with today? Who are the relationships I need to pursue? Who do I need to talk with? Is there anyone I need to reconcile with? How are my relationships with my family? Is there any part of my character that I need to ask you to change? And it becomes five minutes of soul searching with the Lord and asking Him for wisdom. When I get in the car, this also goes back to high school, although I, I'm not doing a whole lot of driving during these COVID days, but I try to take five minutes as a sanctuary in the car of prayer before I turn on the radio, before I start doing things, particularly if I'm going to be with people, because I may not be ready to be with people yet. And I ask God, help me to respond with grace. 
Help me to respond lovingly. Help me to listen. Help me to be empathetic. Help me to be as Christ to people that I'm going to interact with. And then often I realize I have so many things to do and I don't like interruptions. And God, I'm going to be interrupted. There's going to be things that aren't on my agenda, but they're on yours. So would you prepare me for those things to respond rightly? And I pray about those things. Prayer walking, number six There is no substitute for extended time of praying with God, walking with Jesus like I would walk with a friend. Think of any friend that you would go for a walk with, maybe a spouse, maybe a best friend, maybe a child, maybe a parent, and you want to share everything with. Everything you've been thinking about, you want to catch up with them. You want them to know your heart, how you're processing things, and you want to hear from them what's on their heart. I want to say that there is no substitute for extended time in prayer, and we have to fight for this because this is hard. So one way that I have done this is I live near Parnell Park, so I will go around Parnell Park, and sometimes it literally takes me an entire time around the park to settle in because I notice how beautiful things are. I notice the people who are playing there, the activities that are going on. I notice the traffic. I hear the noises. And it takes me a while to settle in and be able to focus on the Lord. But eventually, I'm able to talk to the Lord. And and I have burdens that are on my heart and anxiety that's in my gut. And I begin to share these things. And I tell God about things that are burdens on my heart and things that I can't solve and things that I need His wisdom in. And I express thanksgiving to him, and I ask God for, for, for what's on his heart, and I begin talking. And I'll keep going around, and sometimes I'll go around two times, three times, four times, and I'm amazed how 30, 45 minutes or more can go by. And it's such rich and precious time. Some of you might find that to be a delightful way to grow your prayer life. The last intentional prayer is number seven. This is praying with others. When we pray with others, Christ is in our midst in a distinctive way. I hope my desire for all of you would be that you've got somebody, a group of four or five friends that you pray with with some regularity, or that your life group engages in significant prayer for one another and with one another. We have a heart cry event that's once a month, and it's specifically for this purpose, to gather as many people as will come who want to meet with the Lord and pray together to seek His will, to intercede, to do all of these things that we've been talking about, that we would experience His presence and appeal to His power and experience His nearness together and intercede for one another and for lost people. And we come away refreshed. We come away emboldened in our faith. And if you have not participated in Heart Cry, I urge you to do that. Or if you have done it in the past and you've let it go for a while, I encourage you to return to it. This month, we're actually expanding Heart Cry into a day of prayer and fasting, and we'll be giving more information about that next week. But that's even an extended way to gather with others. But to conclude, my prayer for you today and this week is that you would be able to take something from today to implement into your prayer life and to grow your prayer experience with the Lord, and that you might experience God making you a little bit more like Christ, particularly as you pray regularly with Him. Would you pray? Father God, 
so grateful for your word, so grateful for the practicality of it. God, we recognize this is holy spiritual territory. Our flesh is weak. Our enemy opposes us, and the distractions are strong. So, God, we pray that you'd give us the ability to rise above, to dedicate our hearts to being prayerful, and to arranging our lives and the calendars of our days to seek you in prayer and to find joy in that. And would you be transforming us in the process, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.